And this morning we're in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. I love this section of scripture because we see the Mount of Transfiguration. We see Christ's glory revealed to Peter, James, and John. Jesus sets his face with determination to go to Jerusalem to die for our sins. And we find that Christ really stands alone, that there's no one like Christ. But in the midst of the majesty of Christ being revealed, we see the depravity of the disciples. They seem to be fumbling at every opportunity. Here Jesus is telling them, I'm about ready to go be crucified, and they're arguing over who can be the greatest. And the mistakes that the disciples make, I think, are mistakes that we're prone to make as well, but their sin, their weakness, their depravity makes Christ stand alone all the more. So if you join me in verse 28, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. If you remember from last week in verse 27, if I could draw your attention there, But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So that's quite a promise. There's some standing right here that you're not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God, see the glory of the kingdom. Now, eight days after that, Jesus is going to fulfill that promise. He goes up to the mountain to pray. Jesus is always taking time to be alone with the Father the value of his prayer life, his intimacy uh, with the Father, brings Peter, James, and John along with him. In verse 29, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Jesus always possessed his glory as God. He never laid aside his, his deity. He's all God, he's all man. And in this moment, Peter, James, and John get to see his glory. We know Jesus revealed in the Gospels as the carpenter, as our Savior who died heroically on the cross for us. But he didn't stay in the grave, did he? He rose from the dead. He ascended to be with the Father. In the book of Revelation, John, who is witnessing this, gets a vision of the resurrected Christ. And I'd like to read it to you. This is Revelation chapter 1, but it gives us a little picture of the glory of Christ. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire." His feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I wonder if Peter, James, and John felt like they had Christ figured out up until this point, and then Jesus is like, you're nowhere close to fully understanding me. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that we have Jesus figured out. When we get to heaven, we're going to experience his glory in a much greater way. 
We're going to see him. We're going to behold him. And so at this moment, his glory is revealed to Peter, James, and John. We've got two visitors, and behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah show up from the Old Testament. Why these two visitors? Well, Moses represents the law, doesn't he? He gave the law to the children of Israel. And the law is our schoolmaster, the Bible tells us, to drive us to Christ. God's righteous standard shows us that we need a Savior, that we cannot earn salvation by our own works and our own effort. Elijah represents the prophets as he gives the message of God. The children of Israel seem to always drift from the Lord and slip into idolatry, even with God's blessings, even with God giving them the law, and the prophets would call them back to the Lord. All of the Old Testament leads up to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ and specifically his crucifixion. So Moses and Elijah are here pointing to Christ, pointing specifically to his uh, crucifixion. Interesting about Moses and Elijah is Elijah, he didn't pass away. God took him home to be with the Lord in a chariot of fire. That's a pretty great way to go, wouldn't it? I'd, I'd vote for that. I think they should have a nursing home called Chariots of Fire. That, <laughs> that would be the ultimate, right? Interesting about Moses' death is he died alone. He went alone to be with the Lord. God wouldn't allow him into the promised land, so he goes up into the mountain, passes away on the mountain, and they were never able to find his body. And then the book of Jude uh, tells us that Michael the angel wrestled with Satan over the body of, of Moses. So they both have some interesting events about their, their death. Some speculate that maybe Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation during the tribulation. That's a possibility. God doesn't tell us for sure, but it is a possibility that it could be Moses and Elijah. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I think this is fascinating, is we have a little bit of what they were talking about. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were talking specifically about Christ's death that was imminent, about his crucifixion that would take place. Moses and Elijah understand what a big deal this is. God in human flesh dying for sin of all time. They know that this is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. This is the ordained time for God to, to give his son. We don't know the specifics of their conversation, but we know they're talking about Christ's death. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Similar to the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus asked these three to pray, they were sleeping, and they, apparently they were sleeping at this moment as well. They wake up and they're heavy with sleep. Ever been there? You're just like, ah, oh, my mind is groggy. I'm not really thinking clearly. And that's exactly where the disciples are at. And they see Jesus in his glory. They also see Moses and Elijah. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, if you're not aware of what you're saying, it's better not to speak. <laughs> That's the lesson from 
from Peter here. What Peter does is he puts Jesus and Moses and Elijah all on the same level. Let's build a tabernacle for Jesus, for Moses, and Elijah. This word tabernacle, it means tent. It goes to the Feast of Tabernacles where once a year the children of Israel would dwell in tents, reminding them of God's faithfulness during their wilderness period. And he's saying, let's build a tent, let's build a tabernacle to these three, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Well, the Father speaks audibly from, from heaven. Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. In the Old Testament, when they built the tabernacle and the temple, there was a cloud, a cloud of God's glory, a cloud of God's presence. And here at the Mount of Transfiguration, there's this cloud. And the father speaks and says, I got to clear this up, Peter. Jesus stands alone. There's no one like my son. This is my beloved son. I want you to hear him. I want you to listen to him. Remember when Christ was baptized, the father also spoke audibly from heaven. I'm curious, what, what does God's voice sound like if we could hear it uh, this morning? And Jesus said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The two times that we see the father speaking audibly from heaven, he's saying, I love my son. This is my boy right here. Why does God want us to know how much he loves his son? Because if we understand how much the father loves his son, then we understand how much God loves us because he gave his only begotten son. The father sent the son as the savior of the world. I think part of the glory of eternity is we're going to see this amazing relationship between the father and the son, this tremendous love that the father has for the son. We feel this in a minute way as parents, how much we love our children, how proud we are of our, of our children. This is my girl. This is my boy. I, I love them. We can't imagine. I can't imagine giving up the life of my child for anyone, right? I care about you all as your pastor, but I'm not giving up any of my kids for the whole lot of you, right? I just, I don't have that capacity. Like, I love my kids. And God in his love gave his only begotten son. And he says, I want you to hear Jesus. I want you to hear him. I want Christ to have supremacy in your life. And I think that's a lesson that we need to learn as well. It can be easy to put a Moses or a, a Elijah on equal footing with Jesus if we're not careful. There's only one. Moses and Elijah are great men, but they fell short compared to Christ. And so don't put a pastor, a teacher, a mentor, an author, anywhere close to the level of Jesus Christ. There's, there's only one Savior. Hear him. Put his words at the supremacy of, of your life. Take the word of God. Allow the word of God to have precedence in, in your life. Take what we have revealed about Christ in the Gospels and saying, I'm listening to Christ. Christ has my attention. Christ is on the throne of, of my life. In verse 36, when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of those things which they had seen. Verse 37, now it happened on the next day when they'd come from the mountain that a great multitude met him. 
Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child, his only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I employed your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So while Jesus is up on the mountain praying, this is what's taking place down in the valley. He brings his demon-possessed son to the disciples, and they're unable to cast out this demon. We know from Mark's account and Matthew's account that this boy was mute because of the demon, not able to speak, that the demon was also throwing him into a fire. Here, Luke says that he was convulsing and, and foaming at the mouth. I love the determination of the dad. He's already brought his son to the disciples to no avail. It'd be easy to say, okay, that's it. But he persists and brings his son to Jesus. Much like Jairus, who we studied a few weeks ago, crying out to Jesus on behalf of his daughter. The widow Nain coming to Jesus on behalf of her son who had passed away. It's the greatest thing that we can do as a parent is to bring our kids to the Lord in prayer. Be passionate, be desperate before the Lord. Be consistent. God, I'm bringing my, my child to you. I need you. The disciples aren't going to cut it. Jesus, I, I need you. In verse 41, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I bear with you? Bring your son here. How long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 32 verse 5, which is interesting because the context is the children of Israel are coming to the promised land out of bondage and their faith falters. They don't believe that God is able to bring them into the promised land. Even though God had delivered them from Egypt, miraculously provided for them in the wilderness, yet they're at a place of unbelief. And so Jesus uses this to also speak of the disciples' unbelief. Hey guys, I've been with you. How long am I going to be with you? How could you not believe that I have the ability to cast out this demon? Also, from Matthew 17, we know that Jesus said that this kind, speaking of this demon, can only come out by prayer and fasting. So Jesus addresses their prayer and fasting and also addresses their faith of why they weren't able to cast out uh, this demon. In verse 42, and as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. The demon's no contest for Jesus. What happens when you turn on the light? The darkness flees. We've got to remember that. God gives us this physical illustration of a spiritual reality is that Jesus is greater than darkness. And when Christ comes into our life, the darkness is uh, cast out. And this demon flees as Jesus rebukes him and the child's healed. He, he's set free. Verse 43, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. So just blown away at how Jesus stands alone. But while everyone marveled at all of these things, which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. So Jesus 
gets the disciples together, huddles up these 12 men, says, I know everybody's blown away that I've just cast out this demon, but I need you to hear this. I'm about ready to be betrayed. I need you to hear this. I'm going to be crucified, buried, and rise again the third day. When they're seeing this display of Christ's power, they're not equating it to Christ going to the cross. They're not equating it to Christ's suffering. They're thinking Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire. So Christ is trying to get this message into their ears. Verse 45, but they didn't understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they didn't perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is interesting, isn't it? They didn't understand uh, the saying, but then God also hid it from them until his, his resurrection. Then on top of that, they were too afraid to ask, well, what does this mean? So don't be too afraid to ask the Lord. <laughs> Lord, what does this mean? I, I don't get this. I don't, I don't understand this. Verse 46, then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. So Jesus is getting close to his crucifixion, keeps giving them this message. And what are the disciples thinking about? Well, who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom? Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be the right-hand man. Can't you hear Peter's pitch, you know? Well, Jesus always calls on me, you know. Peter, James, and John. I, I think I'm going to be greatest in, in the kingdom. And this really shows uh, selfish ambition, doesn't it? And we can relate with the disciples. We can relate with Peter that spoke when he really didn't know what he was saying. We can be followers of Christ, but at the same time, we're trying to get something for ourselves. We're trying to build a name for ourselves or even in spiritual terms, I, I want to be known as the greatest disciple. I want to be known as one who really loves Christ as, as their, their Savior. It's humbling just how much the disciples are missing the heart of Jesus as they're walking with Jesus. And I think that's the lesson for us as well. Is here we are, we can be walking with Jesus, but we're missing it. We're, we're missing his heart. We're missing the message. We're, we're focused on ourselves instead of being focused on Christ and serving others. In verse 47, And Jesus, perceiving their thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is great among you, for he who is least among you will be great. Jesus redefines greatness, doesn't he? Jesus is so patient, and I love it. Jesus could have easily just slapped the disciples upside the head and gone, you knuckleheads, like, you guys are so selfish. Here I am about ready to die on the cross, and you're thinking about who's going to be the greatest. He sees a young child, picks up the young child, puts the child next to him, and says, guys, if you receive this child, you're receiving me. If you receive me, you receive the Father. Culturally, it wasn't valued to take care of young children. I guess a lot hasn't changed, has it? Unfortunately, we don't value taking care of children. Society looks down on moms and dads who, who sacrifice to be with their kids. What does our culture value? More money, more success, bigger careers. And so Jesus says, you want to be great in my kingdom? 
Make yourself the least and the least cared for children. Take the position of being a servant. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. That's true greatness. Not power, not authority, not prestige, not social media followers being a servant. That's greatness. And Jesus lived this out to the point where he goes to the cross to die for our sins. Going on to verse 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. This is another easy mistake for us to make as followers of Christ, is start to divide unnecessarily. Now, it's important to hold the truth, to hold to the gospel, to hold to Jesus Christ and him crucified, to never compromise God's message. But inside of God's message, it's easy for Christians to divide up into groups unnecessarily. And we get our little group together, and there's another group of believers, and we can get jealous, or we can even get to a place where we cry out to Jesus and say, hey, hey, Jesus, you should stop them. They're, they're casting out demons in your name. And what's Christ's response is don't forbid them. For he who's not against us is, is on our side. We need each other as believers in this culture that we're living in. And I'm convinced when God looks down at Colorado Springs, he doesn't see Rocky Mountain Calvary and Discovery Church and Vanguard Church and Fervent Church and Mountain Springs and Calvary Worship Center and New Life. What does he see? He sees his sons and daughters. He sees those that believe in him and those that, that don't. He sees the body of Christ, his bride. And church, we really are in this together. And yes, the churches are different by God's design. If all of the churches were the same in the city, that would really limit those who'd be reached because God uses different churches to reach different people as long as we're true to Jesus Christ as long as we're true to the, the message of Jesus Christ. When we stray from the word of God, then that's something to divide over. But when we're true to the gospel or true to God's word, we're able to unite. And I think we have a great opportunity right now in our current culture, in our city, to be unified as believers. And it's a message to unbelievers because the world's divided, isn't it? The world's dividing over everything. And so, so we as believers, if we can stay united... God is glorified, but the enemy wants to come and divide us. And James and John, or John specifically here, he, he's in a place where he's feeling threatened and could easily lead in division. And Jesus is saying, no, we're in this uh, together. In verse 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Amazing. When the time had come for him to be received up, for him to be crucified, Jesus lived his life on a divine timetable. He knew that he was going to be crucified. No one was taking his life from him, but he was willingly laying down his life. John's gospel tells us that Jesus knew the time had come, this ordained time by the Father for him to be crucified. Jesus knows this time going into Jerusalem is going to be like no other time. He's going to go to Jerusalem, be arrested, betrayed, put on trial, 
crucified. And what does he do? He sets his face steadfastly. This is when you're determined to accomplish a task, when nothing is going to move you from a task. And, and Jesus is saying, nothing is going to move me from going to Jerusalem to lay down my life upon the cross. As we go into Thanksgiving this week and we think about all of the things that cause us to be thankful, at the top of the list, it's that Jesus was determined to go to the cross for our sins. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what the cross was going to accomplish, and it was our forgiveness. It's that, that we could be the sons and daughters of God, that we could be the bride of Christ. And he's saying, nothing is going to move me from going to the cross. Have you seen in life people show just exemplary acts of determination? Several years ago, a movie came out called Unbroken, and after I watched the movie, then I, I wrote, read the biography. It's on Louis Zamperini's life. It's, it's a fascinating book. I especially loved uh, the book. But Louis Zamperini, he was an Olympic runner prior to World War II. Enlisted into the army, was sent to the South Pacific, where was shot down and spent 47 days on a life raft on the South Pacific, almost died in the South Pacific. But then he was captured by the Japanese, rescued by the wrong camp. Could you imagine? Oh, here comes my rescuers. No, this, this, is, this is not looking good. And he was put into a prison camp where he was, was tortured. And the leader of the prison camp noticed Louis... Zamperini as an athlete, as an Olympic athlete. And so he tortured him more than the other prisoners. And there's a moment in, in Louis's life where he's being forced to hold this big piece of wood over his head. And if he dropped the wood, then he was going to be tortured more. And with absolute determination, he just holds that wood over his head for hours and hours and hours to say, I'm going to spite this Japanese leader of this prison, prison camp. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. And it's just moving that, that any human could have that kind of determination. And Louis Zamperini, he didn't know the Lord. And after he got back, he eventually uh, got out of that prison camp. The, the war ended. His life was a, a complete mess and spiraling out of uh, control. And he ended up coming to know Christ as his savior and being a champion for uh, the gospel. But that little moment in Louis Zamperini's life where he wouldn't let that wood down and just continued to hold it up, it reminds me of Christ. It reminds me of Christ saying, man, I'm determined. I'm determined to go uh, to the cross. And there's those times in our lives where there's suffering that's set before us, where, where God allows a difficult task, and we can be moved by the endurance of Christ. We can rely upon his strength and saying, in and of myself, I'd be moved off of this, but Christ lives inside of me, and so, so Jesus, would, would you help me? Would you help me to endure for the joy that's set before me. In verse 52, and sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Oh my! 
I guess James and John were pretty pumped up about meeting Elijah. And they're like, hey, we could do this too. We can call down fire from heaven. Second Kings 1, that's what Elijah did. But once again, the disciples are completely missing it, right? Jesus is going to the cross to save lives, not to destroy lives, to provide redemption for sin. But here, James and John, like, they didn't receive you. They didn't give you falafel. Off with their heads. Fire from heaven. Let's just toast the whole village, right? And we too, like James and John, once again, this is a mistake that that we can make is we miss the heart of God. And we're very quick to come to a place of judgment when God's wanting to bring forgiveness. Now, God will judge, won't he? Ultimately, if someone doesn't know Christ as their savior, they reject Christ through the course of their life, hell is a very real thing. There's, there's times throughout scripture and history where, where God has brought his, his judgment, but he doesn't desire that any would perish. He desires for people to be saved as they turn from sin to receive his forgiveness. In verse 55 But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. You don't know what spirit you're of. If you're taking notes, write down James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Because there, God tells us that there's two types of wisdom. There's a wisdom from beneath that's from hell, and there's a wisdom that's from above. And the wisdom that's from above is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, makes peace. But the wisdom from beneath is, is evil, it's selfish, every wicked thing ab- abides there. And as believers, we can be in a place where we're following the wisdom from beneath instead of the wisdom from above. And, and Jesus calls this out to James and John says, you don't know what spirit you're of. And the son of man, he came to save lives, to not destroy lives. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road and someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Little did they know that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to die. Like, yeah, I'll go with you wherever you're going to go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? Then it's a life where comfort and security are not promised to you. Jesus says, I I don't have a home. I don't know where I'm going to lay my head. Are you willing to, to sign up for that? Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Most Bible teachers and commentaries think that it wasn't that this man's father had actually died and they were preparing the funeral, but more of this idea of saying, well, once my father dies and I bury him, then I'll follow the Lord. Really putting off following Jesus for some point in the future And it's urgent for us to follow Christ today. Maybe you have something in your life that you're saying, yeah, I'll follow Christ, but I need to do this first. And once I do this, then I'll follow the Lord. And Christ's response is, no, follow me today. Follow me right now and go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. 
But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus knows the heart of this person as they're going to say goodbye to their family, that their heart is more with their family than with Christ. And Jesus says, no, if you're, if you're looking back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. You're not fit for following me. Is, is there something in our life before Christ or, or something outside of Christ where it seems to have our attention and, and we're looking back? Jesus doesn't want our attention looking back. He wants our attention upon him and looking forward. God is always a forward-moving God. Amen? He's always concerned about taking us in the future and us, us following Christ for our hearts to not be looking back. So in the text, in what we've studied this morning, it's, it's a beautiful and amazing section of Scripture of the majesty and the supremacy of Christ. And hear the words of the Father. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. The glory of Christ. The determination of Christ. That He would set His face to Jerusalem to die for our sin. The patience of Christ. As the disciples are arguing over who can be the greatest, that He picks up a a child and says, Hey, serve this child. Be a servant and you will really be the greatest. Many lessons for us to learn, these mistakes that the disciples make, I think are mistakes that we can make as well. I can't think of a better way to end this message than for us to take communion together. Jesus instructs us, as we're entering into communion, we're we're entering into an invitation that he gives us to remember him. He knows that we can tend to lose sight of Christ. Remember his broken body for you. That Jesus went to the cross for you. That his blood was was shed for you. Do this in remembrance of, of Christ. Open up our hearts to the Lord and allow God to search us and, and confess those areas of sin. To be in right relationship with him. As we come to the communion table, there's elements here in the front and there's elements in the back. If you don't know Christ as, as your Savior... And I pray that today would be the day that you would turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And Jesus, I believe you died for me. I rose again. It's not enough to simply believe that Jesus exists. The Bible tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. But it's for us to understand that I'm a sinner, to believe that Jesus loves me, to turn from sin and invite him to be the Lord of my life. If you haven't made that decision, as we come to the communion table There'll be prayer team and pastors available on the side and please come and let us know. I'd like to receive Christ as my savior. If you have questions, we'd love to sit down with you and get into God's word and try to answer those questions. Also online, there's a team that's ready to pray with you. If you'd like to receive Christ as your savior, you can indicate that uh, decision. So would you stand with me and let's pray and prepare our hearts to enter into communion this morning. Jesus, you're amazing. You're awesome. There's none like you. you. You stand alone. We can only imagine and anticipate your glory. We look forward to someday seeing you in your glory, to see this mystery of the Trinity and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to give your Son that you love, that you care for your only begotten, 
And would you allow communion to be meaningful in our hearts and our lives this morning as we come to the table that we could remember you, Jesus. We open up our hearts to you. We're, we're like the disciples. We, we speak out of turn. We're, we're selfish. We want to be the greatest. But we tend to want to divide and call out your judgment when you're wanting to bring forgiveness. So would you meet us? God, would you bless us, your people, in this time of communion? In Jesus' name, amen.